So let's turn to God's Word together now. And I'm sure that those of you here tonight who have children in your lives, whether it be your own children or maybe you're a grandparent or you're an aunt or an uncle, will be familiar with height charts. Sometimes you go into a home where there are younger children and you see a height chart that is either hanging up um, by a door or is pasted on, or sometimes it's not even a height chart, it's just a door frame. And you can see on the door frame all of the different markings for the different stages of life of the children who live in that home. And it reminds us that physical growth is measurable. That when it comes to our human development over time, we see evidence of growth. And so we say to kids when we meet them with their, their parents, oh, you're getting big, or I can't believe, and you sometimes check if it's been a while, so is this so-and-so? I can't believe he's that size, or I can't believe she's got that big since the last time I saw you. But what about spiritual growth? Is there a way of measuring how we are growing in grace? Well, as we seek to answer that question right at the beginning tonight, it's so important to think back to our first week and what it was that we were looking at together. And remember, one of the big lessons from that first week of growing grace was that we discovered that growing in grace means becoming like Jesus, that God works in such a way in the life of His people that He makes them become more and more like His Son, Jesus. Indeed, that is His purpose. That is His intention for His people, and I can't begin to emphasize that truth enough tonight or any time that I stand up here to speak from God's Word. And last time as we started to consider that, we, we discovered an incredible truth, a truth that might have been actually a bit shocking or certainly unexpected for some people, and that is the truth that Jesus Himself grew in grace, that there was spiritual growth in Jesus' life. And some people might almost resist that notion, but this is Jesus, the Son of God. How in any way can He begin to, to grow spiritually? Has He not arrived spiritually? But we remember the great doctrine that we were grappling with last time, that truth that Jesus is both fully human and fully God, not half and half. It's not some kind of hybrid it's a mysterious and a miraculous and an amazing thing that at the same time, our Jesus is both fully God, He is divine, and He is fully human. He is a person just like you and me here in church tonight. And so, we were reminded of Luke's summary of the, the adolescent years, the early years of Jesus' life in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Uh, and Luke really summarizes that whole period of Jesus' life like this. He says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
And that's important because what it means is that actually Jesus is a realistic model for us to follow in our growth. That as a man, as a person just like us, as we look at His life, we see the possibility of growing in grace, growing in wisdom, growing in our knowledge and, and in our, our love for the Lord as well. And so, Sinclair Ferguson summarizes it like this, and let me take you through this again. Jesus, who grew in grace Himself, is the source of spiritual growth. We, we use the means of grace, and ultimately, our eyes are pointed to Jesus. We look to Him if we ourselves want to grow spiritually. But then he continues, Jesus, who grew in grace Himself, is the example of spiritual growth, an example for us to follow. And Jesus was a man Himself, and that is why He too needed to grow spiritually. And we thought about what that growth looked like in the life of the Lord Jesus and the means by which He grew, and you can recap on all of that by reading section one, the first section of the book, Grow in Grace. But tonight, our focus shifts to thinking about the marks of spiritual growth. What indicates that we're growing in grace? Is it our attendance at church and our participation in worship? Is it going to prayer meetings? Is it sharing Jesus with our friends? Is it getting involved in different types of Christian work? Well, all of those things for sure are good indications of a Christian maturity, of a growth that is taking place within our lives as believers in Christ, and none of them should be underestimated. But there are deeper indications that we are growing in grace so that Sinclair Ferguson identifies three essential marks of spiritual growth, three indications that will enable you personally and those around you to see that you are growing in grace. And those indications are a desire to know God, and then following on from that, an increased knowledge of God in your life but also a willingness to sacrifice, to follow the example of Jesus, and to be sacrificial in living for the Lord. And tonight for a while, we're going to think about just one of those marks of growth, and that is increased knowledge of God. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean to know God in a deeper way? Well, let's go back to the Lord Jesus and what we have already been reminded of tonight in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. There we're told that Jesus grew in wisdom. And how does Scripture define wisdom? We'll look at Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Proverbs 9, verse 10. And this is a definition for us to grapple with tonight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, if you think about it, to say that Jesus grew in wisdom is actually to say that Jesus feared the Lord. 
And, and maybe once again, people almost recoil at that. Hang on, first of all, you're saying that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, grew spiritually. Now you're telling us that Jesus feared the Lord. No way, Philip. Yes, Jesus loved the Lord. He loved the Lord with a perfect love. No one has ever loved Him as intimately as Jesus did. But there's no way that Jesus would have needed to or could have feared the Lord. And so that brings us to, if you like, the punchline for tonight. It brings us right to the heart of what it is that we're going to think about for a few moments in the time that remains. What is fear of the Lord? And why is it essential that we fear Him as believers in Christ? Because this idea that Jesus feared the Lord and that we should fear Him also, it's kind of offensive to many people. That is, that is until we understand that in the Bible it talks about two very different types of fear. And we're going to use the descriptions that Sinclair Ferguson gives. Sinclair Ferguson is a theologian, and theologians like their phrases and their terms. But in actual fact, once we get past these words that might look slightly strange, I think these words, these descriptions of these two types of fear will be really helpful to us. So, there are two types of fear. On the one hand, there is what could be called servile fear. And, and it, the clue is in the name serve, servile, serve, servant. And it's the kind of fear that people ha- tend to have of God before the Holy Spirit does a work in their lives and they become Christians. You could describe it as a sense of terror of God, and we'll come back to that in just a second. And then there is another kind of fear. And tonight, maybe slightly simplistically, but all the same, we're going to describe it as the right kind of fear or a good fear, and that is filial fear. And it comes from the the Latin word for son or for child, and it should be the experience of every true child of God. So, if we just try and unpack these two types of fear a bit more and try and understand them better, let's go back to servile fear. And it really is the fear that a slave would have had of a tyrannical master. I've been watching um, on on iPlayer that program recently about the, the Nazis, the rise of the Nazis, but in actual fact, the final part of it is about their downfall. And the last two episodes are about the people who made it their life's goal to track down these guys, because at the end of the war, many of these Nazis fled all over the world, particularly Latin America. And this was a program all about the people who went after them to try and bring about justice. And inevitably, in in, in tracking them down and in the story of that, you were hearing about what the lives of these people were like during the years of Nazi rule, and it was horrific. And in the labor camps that many of them managed, life was cheap. 
and people were harshly and cruelly punished for the most minor infringements, sometimes for no reason at all. There were summary executions. And you would imagine that for people who were living under that regime, the fear that they had of these people was a servile fear. It was a sense of terror, unsure what they were going to do to them. And it's the way that many people who don't actually know God, that's the key part, it's the way in which many people who have no knowledge of God tend to imagine God to be. But then the the good kind of fear, filial fear, and there's actually no perfect human analogy that completely conveys what filial fear is, but let me at least try in part to explain it from my own experience, which will be the experience of a number of people here tonight. When I think about my my parents, and I suppose as I grew up, I started to get to know my parents fairly well. I knew what they were like. By the time I got to my late teens, I came to realize that my parents really did love me. I came to understand that my parents weren't going to give me a beating. They weren't going to mistreat me. They weren't going to throw me out of the house. And I was confident. I became confident. I still am confident that no matter how much I might mess up, no matter what I might do, I was confident that they would never outright reject me, that they would never stop loving me. And yet, having said all of that, and that's a good experience of of parents, but having said all of that, it was still the case in those years of my life that when I did do something wrong, when I messed up, I didn't just casually walk into the house as if everything was just fine with a disregard for how they felt. No, I had a a sense of fear. I had a sense of fear that my actions would in some way disappoint them, that I would let them down. And it was a fear that constrained me to seek to please them in those years that I remained at home. Now, that does not adequately describe filial fear, but hopefully it begins to help you to understand what it's all about. And if we turn to Sinclair Ferguson's definition of this filial fear, this right kind of fear, he describes it like this. It is that indefinable mixture of reverence and pleasure, joy and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what He has done for us. It is a love for God which is so great that we would be ashamed to do anything which would displease Him or grieve Him and makes us happiest when we are doing what pleases Him. Now, we talk very little about the fear of the Lord. The Scriptures talk so much about the fear of the Lord. And the overall message of Scripture is this. Scripture tells us that there is great blessing for those who fear the Lord. For example, Psalms 2 and 112. 
It tells us, it commands us to fear God, and it reminds us that it is the Lord's desire that we would fear Him. And that brings us to the passage that we were reading together just a few moments ago, if you look again at Deuteronomy 5. In that passage, Moses is reminding the children of Israel of the Ten Commandments that were received on Mount Sinai. And he reminds them of the circumstances in which those commandments were given. And he tells them of what the Lord's desire for them is. Look again at verse 29, that final verse. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. And it was the Lord Jesus who perfectly shows us what this kind of fear of the Lord looks like. Because what Jesus did in His life and His ministry is He devoted all of His powers to God. He had an undivided heart. So, in the case of Jesus, He wasn't trying to live both for God and Himself. He prayed, not my will, but your will be done. So, two things to think about in terms of this right kind of fear, this fear of the Lord in the time that remains. First of all, its source. Where does it come from, this fear of the Lord? What is it that should produce this fear in our heart? And again, it's almost impossible for us, isn't it, not to have a negative concept of that word fear. So, in our minds, we might imagine, well, where the fear of the Lord would come from me is in thinking and understanding, how could God ever want to have anything to do with me? He must really hate me. He must really have it in for me. That's how many people view God. But that is not, that is in no way the source of this right kind of fear. No, there is for the believer what is an incredible and a totally unexpected source of fear. It's a source of fear that this world would in no way understand. This filial fear, this fear of a son for his father is produced by God's love for us. It comes about because of the love that God has for us. So that in a few moments' time, or in just a while, we're going to be singing as one of our closing songs, Amazing Grace. The testimony, the experience, the theological reflections of John Newton, who says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And he must have had Scripture in mind like this one here. Psalm 130, verse 4, addressing the Lord in worship, there is forgiveness with you, Lord, that you may be feared. And so, the incredible thing is that it is good news that brings about fear in our hearts. It is the gospel that produces this right kind of fear. Because when we begin to understand the depth of God's love for us in Christ, we're reminded of the seriousness of our sin that necessitated that sacrifice, 
and we begin to marvel that God would, would, would love us in this way, that He would forgive us, that He would justify us through Christ. That's the source of this right kind of fear, this filial fear. But then the other thing, finally, to think about is its impact. What does this good kind of fear, this right fear of the Lord, do to us? What effects should it begin to produce in our lives? And it's so important that we consider that when you think of how this fear relates to our growing in grace, how it is linked to our spiritual growth. Well, here's what the fear of the Lord results in. First of all, it removes all other fears. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. And in that chapter in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is talking to the 12, the 12 disciples. And He's talking to them about the persecution that they will face. And He's saying to them, you're not to be afraid of the persecution that is to come. He says it in the context of teaching them that the Spirit of His Father will help them. And He concludes in verse 28, Matthew 10 verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And it gives us such a perspective. You know, when we do not walk in obedience to God, and maybe you know of times in your life like that, as I have known of times in my life like that, when we do not walk in obedience with God, we rightly fear others. We fear the consequences of our sin. But when we have that filial fear, and this is a fear that can be restored in our hearts, believer in Christ. When we have that filial fear, that right kind of fear that causes us to walk in a nearer walk with the Lord, then really there is nothing else to fear. And there's great comfort in that. And you could do well to pray, and, and I'm trying to pray this as well, Lord, help me to fear You in such a way that there will be nothing else to fear in this world. So, it removes all other fears, and that's a great thing for us to consider. But then second, it prevents us from continuing in sin. So, we read that recap of the Ten Commandments that Moses gives to the people in Deuteronomy 5, but when the commandments were originally given in Exodus chapter 20, accompanying that giving of the law, there was this awesome display of God's might and His majesty and His holiness, it left the people absolutely terrified. It was shock and awe. And as Moses explains what happened, he talks about the two types of fear that we've thought about. This is so instructive. Look with me at Exodus 20, 20. And let's look at that verse very carefully. Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. 
and we read that Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And you read that and you maybe think, Moses, make up your mind. What's it to be? What a contradiction in that verse. It would give lovely ammunition to those people who say, you know, different parts of the Bible contradict one another. There it is in one verse. The first sentence, do not be afraid. The second sentence, be afraid. What's it to be? But if we read that verse again, and we consider the two types of fear that we've been thinking about tonight, so read it again with me. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. That servile fear, that wrong kind of fear, that bad fear. Then he continues, God has come to test you so that the fear of God, that's filial fear, that's the right kind of fear, the good fear, will be with you to keep you from sinning. And I want to ask you tonight, as I always need to ask myself, what's your greatest motivation to avoid sinning? Getting caught? Getting into trouble? What it should be is a fear of the Lord, a deep, deep concern to please Him and to avoid what brings Him displeasure. So, this fear of the Lord, it should remove all other fears. It prevents us from continuing in sin. And then thirdly, it produces integrity. So, this right fear of the Lord, this filial fear, will produce the right kind of character in our life. Because fearing Him, then our greatest concerns begin to change. If our greatest concern is to please Him, we will share God's love for, for integrity and for justice. We think of the example of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah was the governor of Jerusalem, when he got the permission of the king to go and transform Jerusalem, and he was acting as the governor there, he didn't treat the people in the bad ways that his predecessors had. And he explains why in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 15. First of all, he talks about all of the injustices that the, the former governors had brought about in that city. But then he continues in Nehemiah 5.15, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I did not do so because of the fear of God. And so, his fear of the Lord resulting in a change in your character that, that others notice in your workplace this week or in your school or in your college, in your, your home, your family home tonight, amongst your neighbors and your friends, the people in your street or in your district. But then fourth, it promotes obedience. This right kind of fear promotes obedience. So, it's not simply leading to the avoidance of doing wrong. It motivates us to want to do what is right and pleasing in the sight of God, even when that makes us stand out in our society, even when that seems crazy to people who have no fear of God at all. 
And we think of the example of Noah, so that if we look up Hebrews 11, that great chapter of those people of faith, and what does it say in Hebrews 11 about Noah? Look at verse 7. The writer to the Hebrews says, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. That's the key phrase for us, in holy fear. The reality was that Noah was much more concerned about what God thought than what other people thought. What about you? What about me? What is our preoccupation? Who is it that we're most concerned about pleasing? And then one final thing, fifth, it motivates and helps evangelism, sharing Jesus with others. Paul, the apostle, talks to the Corinthian church about the way in which they are to worship, and he does that in 1 Corinthians 14. And let me read with you 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24. He says, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are led bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What Paul is saying there, in short, is that in our times of worship, there should be such a sense of God's presence that people who aren't believers are convicted and drawn to the Lord just by the very presence in that place amongst those people. Wow, look, look at these people. What is going on here? What's going on in their lives? I want some of that. I, I, I sense that I'm missing something in my life. And so, in the early church, we see example after example of how the right kind of fear, this filial fear, motivated believers to share the gospel with others. Paul sums it up like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. He says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Do you see the link? We fear the Lord. We know what fear of the Lord is, and therefore, we try and persuade others of their need to come to this great God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, is fear of the Lord compelling you to make Jesus known? Tonight, we have been able to see that there are, in fact, two types of fear. There is that right kind of fear, that good fear, if you want to describe it like that, that filial fear that should be present in the life of God's people. And it is vitally important because to grow in grace means to grow in fear of the Lord. And the truth is, this fear will increase as we consider more and more what God is like, as we consider more and more what He has done for us. Therefore, it will increase as we avail of the means of grace in our lives day by day. May it be so, and together may we increase in our knowledge of and in our right kind of fear of the Lord, for His glory and for our good. Amen.